Okay. Continuing on. Uh, and I appreciate your grace for me as well. So, Paul says that in, in Romans 10.9, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what baptism is saying. But what baptism is depicting is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So here on Easter morning, as we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, baptism is a symbol of what we are celebrating today, and a symbol that we should all, as believers, have participated in, in our public proclamation of our faith in Christ. And our faith, not just in Christ, but our faith in the work that he did on our behalf. So we see in, in these three verses then, uh, Paul is really drawing out that activity. So Colossians 2.12, he says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul is saying that as, as just as Christ was, he died, was put in the tomb inside the earth, and then the stone was rolled away, Christ emerged, resurrected, and alive. So too, then, as believers, when we are, and I recognize that I am, in this case, uh, arguing for immersion baptism, and I know there are some that differ in the, that thought, but Paul is arguing that just as that we too, when we are baptized, we are dead in our sins and then we are submerged in, our wa in the water and that, in that, that is symbolizing Christ's burial and then we are brought back out of the water and that is symbolizing his resurrection in life. So as you were, you were dead, you were submerged, you were buried, and then you were brought forth resurrected in new life. So as Paul says, we were baptized, we are buried with him in baptism, and we were raised with him in, a, in baptism as well. <clears throat> he says in Romans 6, 1 through 4, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So again, when we are baptized, we are participating, in effect, not doing it ourselves, but we are participating with Christ who does it on our behalf in that act by which we are all saved. <clears throat> and again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, Paul states, For I delivered to you, as of the first important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So again, this isn't referring directly to baptism, but where we've already seen baptism directly linked to the resurrection Paul is making the case that we are saved by that work, and therefore it then leads that baptism 
is a recognition and a repetition, not in the power of, but in remembrance of that which Christ did for us. But the old axiom that I was taught a long time ago by a very godly man that really governs a lot of how I interpret the Old Testament, how we should all look at the Old Testament. The axiom, axiom stating that what God has done in the past is both a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. So when we look at the Old Testament, we see, which is the bulk of Scripture, we see again and again and again these promise-shaped patterns that are repeatedly pointing us ultimately to the work of Christ. Again and again and again in places where we don't even think to see them, they are there and they are embedded there. And that's really what I want to talk about today is, is the typological presence of baptism and the resurrection in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and so there on the second page at the top, I, I laid out a chart of passages that deal with specifically with baptism and resurrection. And that's, that's really what I want to address now for the bulk of the class. Um, and, and as we talk about each of these things, just again, keep in mind that here on Easter, you can preach Easter from creation. You can preach Easter from the flood. You can preach Easter from the exodus. I mean, these are all things that are pointing us towards that work by Christ. So again, all of Scripture informs on all of Scripture. And it should not come as a surprise to us that we can do this. Again, when, when you read the New Testament and they talk about Christ being revealed in the Scriptures, this is what we're talking about. These kinds of things, these pattern-shaped promises that God has made are pointing us to Christ, to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the salvation that comes from these things. So, so let's talk about them. <clears throat> and the first one that, you know, a good place to start is with the creation of all things. And how does baptism and resurrection figure into that? Well, where, where do we see what is going on at the very beginning? In the beginning, the Spirit of God was what? Hovering over the waters of the deep. Okay, so the waters, first of all, are we baptized in water? Yes, we are. And in baptism, the waters represent what? Death. Okay, now, I just want to set aside, also, before I go any further, I should have mentioned this earlier. There is a, a, another aspect of baptism that is also important, which is the, you know, the washing. And I'm not addressing that in this class. But as in so many things, you know, God, God's Word just spreads out in so many different directions, and it all ties back in together. So we're not addressing the washing aspect of baptism. But there is the death aspect of the water, which represents the grave. So, 
in Genesis, the waters are said to are, are chaotic. They are primordial chaos represented in water. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters of the deep. And then through Christ in the speaking, there is light. And what comes next? But the waters are divided. And what comes out of it, what rises out of it, is land. And land upon which what will live. Life. Not just life in terms of fish, but life in terms of those who are made in the image of God. So you have, very basically, the beginnings, the, the hinting of baptism and the pointing of the resurrection, the pointing to the resurrection. That's a very vague pointing, but it's the beginning of the promise-shaped patterns that are to come. This is what we call typology. God is more explicit in the flood account, in Genesis 7 through 9, where you have a sinful world. And does God judge that sinful world? Yes, he does. How does he judge it? He submerges it in death. The whole world is flooded and buried in a watery grave. But, is that the end? No. New life is resurrected out of that. God begins anew with Noah and his family. And with that comes new promises that God has made about how he will save his people. That's what we call the Noahic covenant. <clears throat> so, again, you have the depiction of death, grave, water, resurrection, and new life. So when you read about the flood you're really reading something. I mean, there's many aspects to it. I mean, one, another aspect of it is, you know, just as an aside, I mean, God always preserves his remnant. And once again, he is preserving his remnant in Noah and his family. But ultimately, that remnant is looking back and looking forward. It's looking back to Genesis 3.15, which we'll talk about again in a, in a little bit, which is what we call it the proto-evangelion the first good news where even in the midst of the cursing at the fall god is promising that there is one who will come to crush the head of the serpent and noah's the preservation of noah and his family is also a preservation of what the seed of the woman that will ultimately lead to jesus christ who will make all things new so you, you see the, there's layers to this. But the layer that reflects specifically on baptism and the resurrection should not be ignored in this. And that leads then to the next level of this, or not level, that's a horrible word. It sounds like, never mind. I don't even want to say the word in class. But the next, how about this, the next layer of the onion um, you can just peel the layers back again and again. You, so, uh, 
And that's, that's the account of Joseph. And I know that Brandon, I think I was gone that weekend, but didn't Brandon preach on that, the, the typology of that? Excuse me. So <clears throat> then I, I don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but what happens to Joseph? But he is, he is cast, in a lot of translations it says a pit, but in Hebrew it's a cistern. He's again thrown into the water. And out of that water he, he is, in, once he is in that water, that's the beginning of his slavery, of his bondage. And then it's only through the work of God that he emerges out of that, that bondage victorious in the house of Potiphar. So you have a watery grave, you have bondage, and you have resurrection in the house of Potiphar to a position of exaltation. And I think it's really, really, really interesting that in between chapters 37 and 39 is chapter 38. What is chapter 38 about? Why does that get stuck into the middle between 37 and 39. Well, it's the story, I mean, it's, it's a tawdry story of Judah and Tamar and how he fathers a child on her, not just out of wedlock, but just in the horribly twisted situation. But what is the product of that union? Yeah, we see, that, you know, in the genealogy, of Christ that Tamar ultimately is one of the four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus in the gospel. And so by the insertion of chapter 38 of that story of Judah and Tamar, you have Joseph thrown in the water in slavery, and then what happens? The seed is perpetuated, that ultimately will lead to Jesus Christ. So he is, in effect, present in the loins of Judah, just as, you know, it says that Levi was present in the loins of Abraham when Abraham gave tribute to Melchizedek, and therefore Levi is an inferior priesthood to that of Melchizedek. I mean, there's a lot of things you can draw from that, but Christ is then, if in effect, inserted into the story of Joseph, and on the other side of that insertion is Joseph resurrected and exalted. Does that make sense? It's like, it's like why on earth would that story just of Tamar and Judah just be stuck in the middle of that? I mean, it makes no narrative sense except that Christ is being positioned into that story. But again, baptism is, and resurrection are present there. Watery grave, bondage in sin, Christ present, and then ex resurrection and exaltation. So, <clears throat> moving on from that, things get even more obvious when we get to the Exodus. Well, before I get into the Exodus, are there any other questions? Any questions? Nothing? Okay. I like questions. Um, so the Exodus is really when uh, the New Testament even really starts to draw in the obvious parallels. So 
what happens? I mean, we all know the story of the Exodus. Israel is in bondage. We understand that bondage is a symbol pointing to sin. So the bondage of Israel, just as the bondage of Joseph, is really pointing us to our own bondage to sin. That the human condition is is fallen, that none of us measure up to God. We are all in slavery to sin. And it's only through Christ that we are yanked out of that bondage and redeemed. And that is one of the many things that the Exodus story is revealing to us. It redeemed the nation in real time-space history. I mean, it pulled them out of bondage but it is also pointing us to the work of Christ who will pull all people out of bondage. So what happens? They're in bondage in Israel. It is the land of death. And Israel, I said Israel, full stop. They are in Egypt, in the land of death. And Egypt really is a culture that is obsessed with death. What are the monuments that we think of when we think of Egypt? Pyramids. Monuments to death. You know, when we think of the pyramids, we often, I'm going to go on a little tangent here, but just to give you guys an idea of of how powerful the imagery that God is using is. Egypt is a land of stark contrasts. The, the center of their life is the Nile River. And on three miles to either side of the Nile is a land of incredible fertility. And every year, the Nile would flood. It's called the inundation. And when the waters would recede, it would leave a thick slurry of black mud that was profoundly fertile land. So within that three-mile floodplain of the Nile, They could grow two harvests a year of wheat. It was a a land of profound abundance. But outside of that narrow corridor of the Nile, where the waters of the river do not reach, was absolute barren desert. And when we think of the pyramids, are they amidst irrigated fields or are they out in the desert? They're in the desert. And that, to the Egyptians, was literally the land of the dead. You had the land of the living along the river, and you had the land of the dead. Literally, that's what it was. And the pyramids were actually just a part of a larger complex of structures where they were out in the land of the dead, but there was a literal bridge, a causeway that was built into the fertile floodplain of the Nile where there were temples. So you had a a temple in the land of the living, a giant structure in the land of the dead and a bridge that connected them. And the entire abundance of Egypt was put to the use of the pharaohs, the god on earth, to build these massive structures that are monuments to their own death. And they were obsessed with it. it. Death was very much a part of the life of Egypt. And so where is God's people in bondage? 
but the land of the people obsessed with death. So there's a very real aspect to Egypt symbolizing death. And yet God intervenes mightily to save his people. Does Israel save themselves? No. Are they unable to redeem themselves out of bondage? Absolutely not. Are we able to redeem ourselves out of bondage? Absolutely not. But how does God accomplish this amazing thing? Well, we'll get to the Passover in a second because I want to focus first on the explicitly baptismal and resurrection aspects of this. But God leads his people out of Egypt. And what are they led by? Big pillar, cloud. It's described as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is often used in the Old Testament as a term for the pre-incarnate Christ. So I don't know if this is one of those cases or not, but I think in some way we can read that Christ is present in leading his people out of the bondage of sin in a real way. But they get to the Red Sea, and they are trapped between the sea and the armies of Pharaoh, death. And what does God do? Moses says, fear not, Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. So he's saying, just sit there and watch what I am going to do for you. Like, they are powerless to do anything. God will do everything. What role do we have to play in crucifying Christ, in his burial, and ultimately, Really, what role do we have to play in his resurrection? We have no role in that. Just as in Exodus, the Hebrews had no role in the parting of the sea and their passage through the waters from death to life. Did they walk through muddy ground? That means when they came out on the other side, were they muddy? Or were they clean? They were clean. So you have very poignantly a picture of baptism, which really is a picture of the resurrection. So Brandon could get up here this morning if he so chose, and he could preach Exodus on Easter morning, and it is 100% spot on. I think that's pretty cool. But, you can go to the third page. The Exodus is not just, it's not happening in a a vacuum. The Exodus itself happens on the heels of the Passover. Oh, before I get to that, there you see Paul making a very direct connection between Exodus and baptism i mean hermeneutically it's not a challenge this is he's pretty much just saying it he says for i want you to know brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud 
and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So, I mean, it, we don't have to do any hermeneutical work here. Paul's doing it for us. So he's making it very easy. So this, is, this isn't a leap. But there's a lot more that we can say than what Paul is saying. I mean, obviously, he's just giving us a snapshot of it. And I think it's, it's really, really interesting that the Exodus is coming on the heels of the Passover. <clears throat> and that those two things together really are forming a picture of what we are celebrating at Easter. When the angel of death comes into Egypt, what is preventing the angel from killing the firstborn of Israel? The blood. Of what? Of a lamb. Okay. So through the blood of the lamb, God's judgment is withheld. So you see there's this is the first half of what's accomplished in the work of Christ. Through the blood of Christ, God's judgment upon us is stayed. He's holding it back. Because of the blood of Christ, He is not judging us. So because of the blood of the Lamb, Israel was not judged by the angel of death. And then that follows then by the great baptism of the Red Sea by which we follow Christ forward through death into salvation. So you have judgment stayed and salvation reached together, both depicted in the Exodus and accomplished ultimately on the cross. Does that make sense? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, we don't read this stuff. I mean, it's a mix... I have such mixed feelings because, you know, I grew up in Sunday school and I was drilled on all these stories of the Bible. And that's really the level that kids are at is stories. But it took a lot of work and a lot of growth to read the Old Testament not as stories. It's really, you know, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a book of well, these were good guys who followed God and we should be like them. It's really a scripture of deep, deep, eternal profundity that is depicting the work of God and pointing to the work of Jesus Christ in all aspects, in all levels, and in all places. That is what the Old Testament is doing. And it's really hard for me, even now, to move past the, you know, what I call the flannel graph level. You know, it's just, these are stories. And they're good stories. And kids should be taught them. But we need to pull them past that, too. So. What, what, start again. I didn't hear the first part of what you said. Absolutely. They are incredibly vivid pictures, but we have to have a mind to see what's behind the pictures. You know, what, what, what is God really trying to, to tell us? And again, this is where that old axiom comes into play. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what He will do in the future. So when you read the Old Testament, 
and you read the Exodus story, that is a model and a promise for what God did in Jesus Christ. Not in Jesus, but what Jesus Christ did for us. So the Exodus is a model and a promise for that. Absolutely. Yesterday, today, and forever. Okay. But we're not done there. The baptism continues. And really, the, the Exodus story does not reach its final conclusion until Joshua. And the crossing of the Jordan is really the, the second half of this great saga where once again, <clears throat> you, have, you have the people not necessarily in bondage, excuse me, but they are in effect in chaos in that they are wandering through the desert, that there is no purpose. I mean, God has his plan, but the people are not living in a purpose. They are not accomplishing a task. They are waiting for the generation to die. But once they have been prepared and, and the, the generation that sinned at Kadesh Barnea has largely passed, obviously not all of them, for Joshua was in that generation, as was Caleb, so most of them, uh, it, it is now time for them to enter the land. And what, is, what does the land represent? Well, it represents a couple of th many things. It represents blessing. God, in promise to Abraham, blessing. The land represents rest. They have, they, when they enter into the land, they will have rest from their wanderings. Just like when we depart from our wanderings and enter into the presence of God, we will finally have rest. So these are big themes that are going on here. And so out of that wandering, out of that restlessness, they are going to cross over into what? A new life. A new life in the land where blessing has been promised, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. So how do they get there? Though? Do they climb over a mountain to get there? No. They, they have to go once again through the water to get to new life. But how is that accomplished? So God tells them to have the ark carried into the water. I mean, the, the priests are to carry, set foot into the water, not set the ark in the water, but for the priests carrying the ark to step into the water. And then what do they do? Do they lower it down into the water? No. Do they just hold it there? No. They raise it up. What is the ark? It's the dwelling place of the presence of God himself. In another way, you could call it Emmanuel, God with us. So the ark prefigures Christ. And by raising it up, so too was Christ raised up on a tree. And through that, the passage 
through the grave was accomplished and new life was reached on the other side. But it doesn't end there. What happened to the waters of the Jordan River? Did they stop? No, not just that. They stopped as if many miles upstream they were blocked up so that the river was no longer even present there. It was not visible just as sin and death will not be visible to God. Sin will be as far, again, as the east is from the west. So it is out of sight. And what was left, on, again, that they crossed over? Dry land. So when they entered into their rest, when they entered into their new life, were they clean or unclean? They were clean. Just as when we are baptized and proclaim the work of Christ in each of us, we are buried, we are dead, or in bondage, we are buried, and we are resurrected along with Christ clean. A new, into a new life. So, again, it's a really profound picture. And that, that really closes out the Exodus story, is that final arrival in the land of rest. So you have it bookended by baptism and baptism. And the people were entering into the land. And what came before the, the Red Sea, the Passover, then concludes the story as they enter into the land, they do what? They hold the Passover for the first time in the new land. God's judgment has been stayed. So, again, if Brandon wanted to, he could get up here this morning and, you know, he could preach Joshua on Easter morning. And it would be absolutely appropriate, the crossing of the Jordan. Um, and we see this motif again in Jonah. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But uh, we're all, again, familiar with the flannel graph aspect of Jonah. But he is in rebellion against God. He flees from God or from what God has commissioned him to do. And uh, incidentally, he was going to Carthage in North Africa. That's Tarshish. But does Jonah intervene on his own behalf to make him right before God? No, God's the one that intervenes and initiates this. And the storm is brought, and Jonah is what? Thrown into the sea. And he's taken into what? The fish. So he's likely in what part of the fish? His guts, his stomach, which is the land of the dead. You know, when a, when a fish eats something, that stuff doesn't stay alive. It's dead. And after three days, Jonah emerges victorious onto dry land once again, resurrected in effect. So you have these, again, these pattern-shaped promises that are replete throughout the Old Testament, giving us a picture. It's because of a hardened heart or just pure ignorance that the Jews did not see this, but many did. I mean, when Christ was 
was there. I mean, they, they knew all this stuff. They, they, saw, they, had, they knew this backwards, forwards, inside and out. But they either didn't want to see it or they, they saw it. So, and <clears throat> there on the, the bottom of the third page, I did include a little chart that shows more of the motifs but absent baptism of the death and resurrection motif in the, the Old Testament. And there's more than this. This was just what I could come up with in about 15 minutes before I printed the notes off. So I apologize for the paucity of the examples that I give. But you have, uh, you know, Genesis 11 and 12 with the judgment at Babel and the destruction of civilization in effect, and yet out of that chaos, God calls Abraham. He is redeemed out of it, uh, out of the death in effect that is wrought at the tower. In Genesis 22, and again, and especially if you read it with Hebrews 11, uh, Isaac, even though he wasn't actually sacrificed, God, it says that he was reckoned as, as returned to Abraham as if he had died. So again, the, the resurrection. And, and the, the, uh, the typology with Christ there is, is just dripping. Um, and Joseph again, uh, in the house of Potiphar, from the exaltation, he's again, in effect, killed and in bondage, and it's only through the intervention of God that he is redeemed, and, you know, the cycles of Judges, and Naomi and Ruth, and, and the death that leads them to needing the kinsman redeemer. First Samuel, I think, is interesting. How many times does David have a near-death experience in a cave, and is, emerges to n new and repeated exaltations? What? Many times. But we don't preach Easter out of 1 Samuel with David cutting a piece off of Saul's cloak, do we? Why not? We should. I mean, that's what it's pointing towards, is it not? You see it in Daniel with the lion's den. I mean, he is thrown into the pit. It even says that there is a stone put over the hole. And yet, Daniel emerges resurrected, in effect, not literally, you understand what I mean here, resurrected and exalted. And then the whole saga of the exile of God's people to Babylon is once again a, a saga of death, burial, and resurrection. You know, God did not judge the kingdom of Judah because they were righteous. He judged them because they turned away from him. And in that judgment, they were conquered by the Babylonians. And they were exiled. They were put in the pit. And then God led them out again. You see how this is just everywhere in the Old Testament. So, and those again, those were just examples absent the baptism motif. But obviously there's plenty of baptism in the Old Testament as well. I think it's interesting to point out, and I'll just, I'll kind of close on this. 
that when we talk about <clears throat> the bap- the resurrection of Christ, you know, what is accomplishing this? Well, when we've looked at these pattern-shaped, promise-shaped patterns, these types that we see in the Old Testament, we see God acting in different ways. So, in, in creation, you, you know, the creation account is a very Trinitarian creation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all present there. When we see the Exodus, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit performing various activities. When we see the crossing of the Jordan and the holding of the ark aloft, prefiguring Christ on the cross, again, you see various persons of God in their activity. And yet, when we look at the resurrection, Scripture testifies that Christ was raised from the dead by the power of not just the Father and not just Christ Himself and not just the Spirit, but by the power of of all three. So the Spirit raised Christ from the dead. Christ raised Himself from the dead on His own authority. And the Father raised him from the dead. We can look at you know, various passages that, that point to that. Galatians 1.1 where it says, From Paul an apostle, not from men nor by human agency, but by Christ Jesus and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter testifies that Christ was raised by the Spirit. Because Christ also suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God, but by being put to death in the flesh, but by me being made alive in the Spirit. And Jesus himself, in several places, testifies to his own power to resurrect himself, his own power over death. He says, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. Is that not the claim that got him crucified? It is. And yet, he says, I will raise it again. So thus, the whole person of who God is and his activity is present in the resurrection. We are told to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see the activity of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not just in resurrection, but to all those events in the Old Testament that are pointing forward to that great and singular and mighty event that we are here to celebrate today. So, I hope that, you know, here on Easter, that all of us are baptized. If we aren't, we should be. I mean, if you are a follower of Christ, you have been commanded to pass through the watery grave and rise again a new creature in Christ. To put off the old man and arise in the new. So put off Adam, arise in Christ. So if you haven't done that, I would urge you to to do so soon, quickly. So, and you know, today as we celebrate the resurrection, think of the Exodus, think of the crossing of the Jordan. Think of God making this world. Think of these things and know that 
these are things that people were reading and seeing Christ, that the Ethiopian eunuch was pointed to these kinds of things. I don't know which things in particular he saw that were pointed out to him. But they were, you know, they were revealed from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. So when you read the Old Testament, read with an eye. Read looking for Christ. Don't make it up, but, but pray that the Spirit will illuminate your eyes and that you will see and that you will know truly. And be reassured. These are not simple stories to give us good moral models. These are stories, these are rec- records of events that are pointing us to Jesus Christ, to pointing us towards his death on the cross, towards his burial, and towards his resurrection. And those who are baptized in, in, in that and proclaim that will have eternal life. So, I will stop there. Any questions? What? Well, thank you. Or I put you all to sleep. I don't know. So, okay, well, I can stick around and answer questions afterwards, too, if you don't want to say them in public. So, but I will, I'm a little early, about four minutes early, but uh, that just seemed like a good place to call it. So, I will pray. And I appreciate everyone giving me this opportunity to, to uh, just hold forth God's word and, and to reveal more of its treasures. So next Sunday I'm going to do it again, but we'll talk about the Lord's Supper. We might talk about the Old Testament again. So let's pray. <clears throat> Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you, we thank you, We know that you are the great shepherd of the sheep and that we are your sheep. For each of those who have been baptized in your name, that we are followers of you, that you have redeemed us. I pray that you will strengthen us, give us courage in a dark world, that we will continue to pull others out of bondage and out of death in your name and that we can point them to you. Pray for this Easter, for those who are hurting, those who are wandering, those who are living in death, that they will be given new life and they will be given rest. Pray all of these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.